Welcome queen to the body love binge with me Victoria. Although we're all unique, honestly I'm no different to you. I'm just a girl who's been through some hard shit, figured out how to thrive and made it her life's mission to help others to do the same. I've beaten anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder and I'm a domestic abuse survivor. My intention for this podcast is to empower you with weekly episodes on all things food freedom, body love and of course juicy, yummy self-love so you can embody the healthiest and happiest version of you. Enjoy the episode my love. Hello queens, welcome to another episode. How are you doing today? Um, Today I have Harriet with me and she is known as the eating disorder therapist. And Harriet is a BACP accredited therapist who who specializes in supporting people with eating disorders and body image. She has worked in the UK NHS in an adult eating disorder service and private practice since 2003. Harriet is passionate about eating disorders and enjoys writing, filming and creating information through her podcast and social media to help and support others. Harriet is dedicated to helping people recover from eating problems and improve their confidence and self-esteem. She is supportive of an anti-diet approach and intuitive eating. Now, Harriet's Instagram is incredible. Unfortunately, her original Instagram was hacked like mine was and she'd spelt she'd spent years building up a huge following so she has started her instagram again but her content is absolutely phenomenal so definitely go and follow her and i've just finished recording the podcast with harriet as i'm recording this intro for the podcast now it's fresh in my mind and it really was a really educational inspirational episode and Harriet's words actually I share at the beginning of the podcast she wanted to inspire hope to others that recovery is possible and after this podcast I definitely think that she delivered that absolutely we talk about things um such as OSFED which is OSFED which is a different kind of eating disorder umbrella that has been um put in the therapy world which is really interesting She talks about how many percentage of people that have eating disorders are not actually underweight. We talk about control and eating disorders, what it means to identify with an eating disorder and then how you can let go of that. We talk about OCD and eating disorders because there's a link, especially with um, restrictive eating disorders. We talk about bulimia and how to stop self-induced vomiting or purging, how to deal with that, what normal eating is, We talk about the fear of fullness because that's a big one that I've experienced previously as well. We talk about how feeling fat has actually little to do with your body. Um, Harriet gives advice on what someone can do if they're struggling with their body image and they're struggling to look in the mirror. And then we finish off the podcast talking about Harriet's and my thoughts on calories being shown on the UK menus which was, it's quite a new thing. So we cover a lot. It's really, really interesting, very educational. It was great to talk to Harriet. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. Harriet, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy that you're here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Victoria. No, of course. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to go into 10 quick fire questions, which you've only just literally found out about. I'm nervous. (laughs) Okay, number one, what's your favourite food? Ooh, chocolate. Yes, be good. <laughs> number two, what are your favourite books in the intuitive eating or anti-diet space? Um, I like Just Eat It by Laura Thomas, and I like Janine Roth's stuff as well, like Breaking Free from Emotional Eating. Um, yeah, those are the first two that like just jump out at me. Awesome. Have you read Women, Food and God? Do you know what? I haven't read that one. I've I've read more of her kind of older ones, like back to the 80s kind of thing. (laughs) She's a brilliant author. Brilliant author. Yeah. Okay. Number three, what is the worst diet you've ever put yourself on? Mm, Interesting question. I mean, although I had a very poor relationship with food, I didn't really used to diet and follow plans I kind of did my own thing so I'm 
slightly different from some people, I guess. I, I haven't done loads of diets, but I still had an eating disorder and a very disordered relationship with food, but it was more my own kind of made up thing of just being very restrictive. So, Which is any form of restriction is horrible, isn't it? To be, to live with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Number four, something that you like that others may consider weird or strange. Parkour. <laughs> there you go. That's weird or strange. <laughs> All right. Number five, the best thing about your career as a therapist. Seeing people change. Yeah. And then, um, just, oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, I think that's that's it. Seeing people change that really yeah. inspires and then the, me. The opposite to that, number six, what's the most difficult or challenging thing about being a therapist? Probably keeping my self-care tank topped up fully. I feel you on that one. Number seven, if you could say anything to your past 10 years younger self, what would you say? Just think of lots of cliches, really. Um, I mean, I just say, like, believe in yourself more. You know, I used to be such a chronic people pleaser and was always waiting for permission almost to sort of step into my power. So mm. it would definitely be along the lines of, like, believe in yourself, trust in yourself, listen to your own voice. I love that. The cliches for a reason, right? <laughs> it's true yeah okay number eight in the future 10 years in the future what would you say to your future self 10 years from now or maybe a question you might ask her <laughs> oh interesting questions um oh I just think something about just continuing to like savor the moment and appreciate things and you know drink up all of life to the max amen Number nine, do you have a hobby? And if so, would you mind sharing it with us? Yeah, so going back to my um, answer earlier about parkour and weirdness, I do like kind of adventure sports and I do do a bit of beginner's parkour and ninja warrior and things like that. So, um, but I, I do it in a very spontaneous, joyful way. I don't do it every week or it's something I kind of dabble in, but yeah, that's something I really love and it's a bit of a hobby. That's awesome. And it keeps your fitness up there as well. Like just with, without really trying, I guess. Well, you have to try, but you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And it's really more kind of playful, really. It doesn't feel like you're doing exercise. So that's the great benefit of it as well, I think. Yeah. Okay. And last one, number 10, I reached out to you and asked you to be on the podcast, which I'm very grateful that you are here. Why did you say yes to coming on? Oh, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think I just really liked your energy and vibe. And um, I thought you were just very warm and inviting. And, you know, why would I say no to that? <laughs> thank you. That wasn't a dig for compliments, by the way. <laughs> but thank you. Received. <laughs> And before I go into the questions that I have for you, I just want to share with the listeners a question I asked you before through the writing that we've shared before we came on here. And I said to you, what do you want to take away from us from this podcast? And then you said encouragement that recovery is possible, education, inspiration and hope. So I just wanted to put that out there because I know that is going to happen today. So before we go into the nitty gritty, can you share briefly your story Harriet like how did you end up with the eating disorder therapist career you have today and a little bit about what you struggled with okay so I struggled with bulimia nervosa between the ages of 17 and sort of into my mid-20s I tried to seek help at the time there was very little available back then I mean I know eating disorders are still very under-resourced today back then really very under-resourced so I very much came into this whole field with a very kind of idealized, I want to save the world, wounded healer perspective, and really wanted to be able to give people a different experience, be able to support people in a way that hadn't been supported. So that was very much my motivation from the beginning. And bulimia for me was very much a coping strategy in relation to difficult things that were going on at home, life transitions, relationship breakup 
you know, it was about food and body image, but it was really about a lot of other things, really, and about not feeling good enough, not feeling I had a voice, being very people pleasing. So I guess I recovered, you know, partly through therapy, partly through having some great friendships, partly through traveling, partly through reading, you know, a whole myriad of things. And I'm a true believer that full recovery is absolutely possible. And I'm aware that some people just make that partial recovery and still feel very stuck in their food rules and all of that. So I just always felt very inspired and motivated to to work in this field. And then I applied for a job in my 20s to work for the Adult Eating Disorder Service in Cambridge and the UK. Got the job. It's one of those ones where I shouldn't have got it. Like I'm not a clinical psychologist. All my colleagues were clinical psychologists. So that was almost like the universe opened that amazing door, that amazing opportunity. And I just learned so much there working with that team. And I still work there 10 hours a week to this day, actually. But um, along the si- alongside, I've always done private work. And even when I first qualified, I was in a little um, sort of natural health store, like above it, like doing my own private work, not really knowing what I was doing, but kind of having this real passion. And um, yeah, and it's just continued from there, really. I guess I've always been um, seeking out new ways to kind of inspire and educate others. So now I do a lot of training of counsellors. I, you know, have been quite engaged with Instagram, but then my account sadly got hacked (laughs) recently. (laughs) But, you know, bigger picture, no one died. Um, And also podcasting. So I've found lots of different avenues, I guess, to sort of spread the message. And I still continue to do some one-on-one work, but probably a bit less than I used to. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of my story, I guess, in a nutshell. I, I love that. And I think you're so right. Having had anorexia in the past when I was a teenager and having the support there, they, I didn't really experience, a, I mean, again, I was in the anorexia mindset and I was a teenager. So I also want to point that out. And, and part of me didn't want to get better. And so I'm so glad that my mom kind of forced that. But even as I was growing up and then found um, binge eating disorder and the therapist there, I've had some great therapists, but none of them really seemed um specialized in eating disorders only and I think a lot of therapists I don't know if you have this opinion too Harriet a lot of them still have their own internalized fat phobia and so therefore a lot of things they say can in my opinion still I can hear it and be like oh that's quite damaging actually to someone who's really struggling with disordered eating yeah and I think it's so true isn't it and I think historically as well when people have been trained in eating disorders it's been more to deal with people that are underweight and then the sort of 85% of people who are not underweight with eating disorders have kind of get overlooked or ignored or their symptoms are minimized or the doctor says to them you're not thin enough to get help so I think it's yeah I would absolutely agree I think it's been very very challenging actually to get help and and the right therapy for an eating disorder perhaps if you haven't got the look that we would assume with eating disorders which is really really outdated now yeah I agree and can we go into where my notes here they are what what would you say is um OSFED so that's quite a new umbrella isn't it so OSFED can you explain what that is for those that don't know Sure. So it's OSFED, um, Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder. They always come up with these memorable names, don't they? (laughs) Um, So it's basically if you don't fit neatly into a diagnostic category, if you don't fit neatly into the anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder box, then you fall into OSFED. And most people with an eating disorder will probably fall into OSFED because Um, you know often it's quite hard isn't it to meet diagnostic criteria and to kind of clearly um, so it might include for example somebody who has what we'd call now atypical anorexia nervosa so they are um, starving following lots of restrictive behaviors but their BMI which obviously has major limitations is still within the normal healthy weight range so they're not kind of recognized as having more typical anorexia nervosa Um, And another example is maybe somebody who is purging after eating, but they're not having binges. So to meet a diagnostic criteria for bulimia, you need to be binging and purging, whereas to fall into OSFED, maybe you're just purging. So it's a helpful category because it does pick up and validate a lot of the nuance in eating disorders. And I guess with diagnosis, it really has its limitations. And 
historically has meant many people have felt they're not ill enough or their eating disorder isn't valid, whereas the OSFED does actually kind of open up a space where people can feel validated and recognise that their symptoms are destructive and they need help. Yeah, I think that's great. And then whilst we're on the topic of this, you've already brought it up, 85%. Was it 85% of people with eating disorders are not classed as quite underweight in terms of the BMI? What do you think, I mean, do you think it matters that someone is officially diagnosed or, and how can someone know if the way that they're eating, the way that they have um, food rules in their life, how can that be a problem? How can they tell if they're quote sick enough? Because so many people don't see that, do they? They just kind of get on with it and think, oh, I'm not that bad and my BMI is healthy and all of that, or I'm not underweight enough. Yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? And I think what I always say to people as well is I think we're all on this spectrum from like a really healthy relationship with food to full-blown eating disorder. But many of us, I guess, are on that part in between where we might have disordered eating. Um, You know, we might be close to having an eating disorder, you know, so that in a way we're all on that spectrum. And I think sometimes we've thought historically our eating disorders are this kind of special, really ill group of people over here. And then we don't kind of connect the dots with kind of diet culture and people doing over exercise and all these other things which actually are disordered eating. So, I mean, I think, again, it's very much looking at the individual, but what's really important, I suppose, is if you're sort of getting up in the morning and your first thoughts are around food and body image, if you're starting to avoid situations because of you don't like your body, if you're starting to feel a lot of anxiety around eating, maybe having to count calories all the time, maybe having to kind of weigh your food, maybe have a lot of food rules, if you're starting to overexercise or feel a lot of anxiety when you're not exercising, and, and maybe if you're starting to think about purging behaviours, like making yourself sick, taking laxatives, those can all be things that can be concerning. But I think um, a real indicator is that preoccupation with food as well. So if you're kind of getting up and your day is overshadowed by a preoccupation with food and weight and body image, then that is a problem because actually you know, of course, in our culture, some of that is probably going to be part of your thoughts, but you don't want it to be the dominant factor, because it's going to be interfering with your relationships, with your ability to work and study, to have hobbies. Um, So it's kind of looking at the bigger spectrum of your life, I guess, and um, for the individual to notice, is this actually starting to become a problem and impacting all those different areas? Yeah, and I remember that like it was yesterday. Like I've been here, well, I say healed, like you say, it's always a spectrum. I've been in my recovery journey for five years now. And I remember what it was like to be 24 seven, constantly thinking about either what my body looked like or what food I had, couldn't have, was allowed, didn't have, binging up, like it over consumes you. And I love the fact you brought up exercise because I didn't realize until a, a specialist pointed it out to me that in my excessive exercising days, if I'd just get back from the gym after a really hard workout and my boyfriend at the time was like going for a run or something, I'd be so angry at him that he was going out exercising again, like how dare he? And I and I would felt like a compulsive need to like do it, do more. And it's the compulsive anxious feeling, isn't it, around exercise, especially with what other people are doing as well. Yeah, no, it's so true, isn't it? And I think you just bring up a great point there in a way that actually people often start out on that kind of weight loss journey or kind of, you know, to feel better. But actually, like just in that, like in that situation, there's a lot of anxiety, isn't there? There's a lot of kind of anger and distress. And I think, again, it's like starting to be honest with yourself around your emotions, because I think when someone's not eating properly, you know, you're irritable, aren't you? Mm. The little things really bother you. You know, someone breathing too close to you. <laughs> Angry 24-7. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you don't want to socialise. You don't want to do the things that you would have used to have done and really enjoyed. So I think, yeah, I think it's a great point. Yeah. And in your story, you mentioned the word control. So with your bulimia, you said it was more of like a controlling mechanism. In your opinion, like with your profession and how many people you help each day or have how many you have helped, would you say most eating disorders are linked to the need to control at the root or is it primarily body image like do you see a pattern anywhere with control 
I, mean, I think it's quite complex. I mean, I think control is there for most people. Although, again, I sometimes think it's a bit of a cliche that everyone will say eating disorders are all about control. But I think the reality is that food is one of the few things in our lives that we do have complete autonomy and control over. You know, so many other things are out of our control, like our relationships or COVID or all these things going on in the world. So being able to control one's food can give you a real sense of safety, a real sense that this is something that's yours, that no one else can take away. If other areas of life are more distressing, then it is like a life raft to cling to, which can make you feel very safe. But I think it's it's more than that. You know, it's about um, sometimes numbing and distracting from difficult emotions. You know, life becomes much more simple if you just have to count calories, weigh your food, count your steps. In a way, the other bigger problems of life blur more into the background. Um, it can be part of identity and achievement. You know, if you don't feel good enough in our sadly and diet culture, people will praise you when you lose weight, when you do lots of exercise. And if you're not feeling very good about yourself, that external validation can be very sort of fleetingly boosting and make you feel better. And although it doesn't actually solve the problem, it's quite seductive and it draws you back in again and again. And because of your core sense of self-worth is sort of diminished anyway, you're kind of needing to kind of keep doing those behaviours to keep that external validation and keep it going. So, um, so it, it's quite complex, I guess. Everyone's story is slightly different, but those are some of the sort of common trends that you see. Yeah, and I love the fact you brought up the word identity because my next question for you was based around that. So in terms of like looking at recovery now, if someone, and most people do with eating disorders, identify with the disordered eating or the eating disorder, what would you say to clients or what he what helpful tips would you give them to kind of prize away the identity of the fitness person or the person who only eats clean and all of that in order to then recover because if we're attached to the identity of the thing we can't really truly recover from it can we if we identify as that as a person yeah it's very true and I think it's the classic stuff which I'm sure you probably do with your clients is like trying to look bigger picture thinking about when you're 90 looking back on your life actually what's going to be really important to you is it actually going to be that you were x amount of weight that you ate I don't know, fruit and vegetables all the time and that you stayed in your room because you didn't want to like socialize in case you were forced to eat something you didn't want to eat. I guess for most people, when they really nail down to what's important, they want to have good relationships, they want to travel, they want to have a fulfilling career. So I think it's getting, it's zooming out, trying to see that kind of bigger picture and having something that can motivate you and inspire you and, you know, pull you forward. Because I guess, the reality is with an eating disorder, although you may be getting external validation, although you may feel like the fit one, the healthy one, there are huge costs to what you're doing, you know, and, and I think anyone that's sort of really honest with themselves will be able to admit that, you know, there's, there might be kind of some benefits with the identity, but actually, the, you know, it's massively overshadowed by all the costs. And I think when people start to really be honest with themselves about that and recognise how the eating disorder is holding them back. You know, I think many people I'll speak to will say, when I had my eating disorder, I felt like my life was on hold, that I wasn't really engaging, that my relationships, you know, weren't strong. I wasn't doing things. And actually no one really wants to often live like that when they kind of really take a step, take a step back. Yeah. Um, but it's hard, you know, I, you know, I, I know it's all very well to say that now, myself being someone who's recovered for a long time. And, um, you know, if you're, not feeling that real sense of purpose and pull towards other areas of your life and if your self-esteem is very low eating disorder can feel just so safe and mm. you can be really reluctant to let go of it but even starting to play with the ambivalence and to explore the pros and the cons think a bit about your 90 year old self even think about like if I continue with eating disorder in two years time where am I going to be if I start to make some changes where am I going to be so again just starting to zoom out see that bigger picture all those things can help yeah thank you for sharing all that especially with the age because I had a client the other day and she was talking about her grandma and her grandma was the ripe old age of 97 and she still weighed herself every day and she still counted calories and it's so interesting that when I speak to because I'm helping um young people right now as well like my first kind of children if you like that I'm supporting and they think that you know when they're older it will just magically they'll be fine or they'll be better 
But then if nothing changes, if you don't learn how to overcome this eating disorder, regardless of how old you are, you're still going to be like this 97 year old, sadly, weighing yourself every day and counting calories, because that's the scary part about it. If we don't change, nothing changes, does it? And it, it, it can be so scary, which I think is why getting support for me personally anyway is was so beneficial because then you're not in it alone and someone understands and they can kind of hold your hand through the journey of recovery yeah no it's so true isn't it and I think you might never feel ready for recovery sometimes yeah. but you know we know with eating disorders if you get help in the first three years you're so much more likely to be able to completely overcome it Mm -hmm. um, and not to say that anyone that's listening, if they've had an eating disorder for more than three years, should be discouraged. Because I've worked with people that have had it 10 years, sometimes 20 years and have recovered. So recovery is always possible. Mm -hmm. But the longer you are in it, the more entrenched you're going to become in it, the more you're going to lose out on life opportunities, the more it's going to become part of your identity. And it can feel harder than to let go of that life raft. So yeah, I just I'd say to anyone listening, really, you know, be brave, get support the earlier you can, and um, because you're, it's going to be harder the longer you cling to that life raft. Yeah, indeed, with the the brain, the neuroplasticity, it, we can change at any time. But like you say, it's entrenched deeper. But it's absolutely possible. Like I'm, you know, me and Harriet, I live in Peru. I was twenty years with different kinds of disorder eating. I was struggling with, and I am, I would say, fully recovered. And I can't explain in words the freedom and the liberation that the, how I live now compared to all those years of all the stuff that I've been through. So it's absolutely possible. Um, I would like to go into OCD. So do you see that, especially with like the more restrictive eating disorders, do you see a link between eating disorders and OCD behaviors? Yes, definitely. And I think you picked up an important point there that perhaps more with restrictive eating disorders um, so I think OCD and restrictive eating are ways of trying to feel more in control to try and manage anxiety. So if we create rules, which could be around food, if it's eating disorder, or with OCD, it could be having to check things, wash your hands a certain number of times, you know, line things up nice and neatly, you know, could be multiple different ways that I guess it, it kind of comes out really, but there's definitely a link. And um, sometimes as well, people may have had OCD before they developed an eating disorder. So if, you know, someone has, has experienced a lot of anxiety at home, maybe as a child, they would have developed those sort of safety OCD behaviours, probably not it being diagnosed or even labelled as that. But if, they, if someone sort of reflects back, they might think, oh, I remember when I had to kind of walk up the stairs in a certain way, or I like the sort of switches to be off, or like, I like my room to be laid out in a specific way to make me feel safe. So I guess that's sort of early clues that you probably felt a bit uncertain, you felt a bit anxious. So the OCD behaviours give that sort of sense of security, again, a bit like a life raft. And then that can very much be translated into eating behaviours and perhaps particularly more restrictive ones. But again, that's generalising. Yeah, I experienced not like intense OCD, but when I was anorexic, I was very, I used to ride horses and if bearing in mind a horse is an animal that lives outside in a stable I hoovered the stable of my horse because it had to have every single piece of anything gone and then the line of the the bed of shavings that I would make for my horse who would literally go in in a second and mess it up because it's the horse had to literally like a spirit level line and if that wasn't straight like I just my brain was like freaking out it's just so bizarre like remembering back like the grasping at some kind of control which is a, a sense of safety but it's actually not a helpful sense of safety at all yes very temporary sense of safety is it and you need to keep repeating it again and again and again to keep getting that reassurance and it's almost like the bucket can never be filled up with reassurance yeah You're always having to keep going back for more yeah and so in terms of bulimia then and or purging so either vomiting or laxatives laxatives was, was was something I've experienced how would you help someone specifically around when they feel the need to to take the laxatives or to go and purge what are your tips for to for well surf urging really to just be with that intense desire to do that any tips for that and I think one of the first things is really working a lot on motivation so often people 
our thinking purging is good. So I'm saying that kind of within inverted commas, you know, you become quite dissociated from the dangers of purging. Mm. Comes a bit like brushing your teeth. You know, it's like a habit that you do to relieve anxiety. Not that you brush your teeth to relieve anxiety, but (laughs) (laughs) you see what I'm saying? It's something that you've become quite neutral about. So what's the helpful first intervention is to realize actually this is very destructive for my body and actually engaging with the costs you know so anyone that's purging is probably experiencing maybe issues with their teeth or digestive symptoms um, acid reflux and um, perhaps IBS symptoms um, you know again perhaps again socially it's very difficult they're having to escape to the bathroom there's a lot of secrecy and shame so it's almost kind of getting people initially on board with really wanting a lot you know to change that behavior because I think if you haven't got that if you're trying to approach it when you're sort of half-hearted about it Mm -hmm. it's going to be really really hard to then follow through so that bit of motivational work is really really important and then you know I guess there's sort of several things really that can help you know sometimes like it's like delaying using the purging strategy so you're almost putting a bit of a window between you know, eating and then the purging behavior, whereas perhaps in the past, you would have literally been in quite a dissociated state and just gone from A to B very quickly. So you're starting to put a window of time in where someone can actually reflect a bit more on what they're doing, think about a bit more about what they're doing, engage and reconnect with the body. Um, And then things like distraction techniques, like you're saying as well, sort of surf urging, you know, the urge to purge will rise and fall. And it's kind of trusting in a way that you can ride that wave it's not going to keep going up up and up and you're going to explode almost you know you can ride that wave and um, getting support I think talking to someone who's really trusted and supportive and helpful and who's not going to police you but who's going to be very much there with you and um, visualizing yourself as well being able to manage the event and coming out the other side sort of successfully having not purged so I think there's lots of different things that can help but it's very much baby steps and um, not putting too much pressure on yourself and almost understanding that relapse will happen. It's quite unlikely that you're going to just stop purging cold turkey and off you go into the sunset. You're probably going to have quite a few blips and lapses as part of the process. And it's, you know, embracing that really and, and using it all as learning experience. Yeah, you know, the biggest thing that helped me was one of the things you brought up, I think, first or second was actually understanding the purging behavior I was doing wasn't really benefiting me in terms of what I thought it was in terms of, oh, I'll just do this behavior and then the calories won't get absorbed, then I won't gain weight. Actually, it it doesn't help in as much as you think it does. And then when I was ready to read the damaging behavior, how damaging that behavior was to my body in lifelong that freaked me out and that really helped me to take a step back and be like look again bigger picture thinking in the future when I'm like 30 I mean I'm 35 now but when I'm like 30 40 do I want to be constipated forever because my bowels are so reliant on laxatives because of what I'm doing to myself so just understanding what we're doing is actually really damaging that helped me so anyone listening I would advise you to to read up about the damaging behaviors of your purging even over exercise and that was also one of mine even Mm. now I mean I'm 35 and very fit and healthy but the amount of over exercising I've done the amount of injuries I have now that I have to take care of as a 35 year old woman because I've overtrained and at the time I didn't want to hear it I was like yeah you're just jealous no motive like (laughs) my eating disorder was so egotistic But it's, you know, I'm telling you or I'm sharing with the listeners, like really just take a look at what you're doing to yourself and in the future that you hold. And it's so true. And I know I've definitely suffered with my teeth from Mm. an almost sort of probably like 10 years from recovery from bulimia. Like at the time, I think I thought I'd kind of got away with it. I'd just been very lucky. But the cumulative impact of purging and acid on your teeth, you know, I really did suffer in years afterwards. So I think, again, sometimes, you know, you're not experiencing those consequences in the moment, but it's realizing actually, you know, you have one body, you want to be like looking after it and, you know, trying to take those baby steps to be able to self-care and begin to appreciate your body and, and not to be punishing it with those sort of purging behaviors. Yeah. What what does normal eating look like? So so many of my clients are like okay I don't even know what normal eating is anymore I'm so used to being told what to eat or looking at a number so how would you describe what normal eating is 
So I guess, you know, for me, it means being free around food. <laughs> so, you know, not really thinking about food too much, really eating to your hunger and fullness, eating a range of foods, um, you know, um, yeah, not having food rules, being able to be spontaneous, being able to kind of go out for food. Um, yeah, for it not to be an issue, really, um, having pleasure and satisfaction from food, not having anxiety, being able to enjoy food, socialize with others. I guess those are some of the things that immediately come to mind. Yeah, I agree, because I didn't know what normal eating was either, because I literally, the, the environment that I was brought up in, I literally thought you're born and so therefore you diet for the rest of your life. Like genuinely, that was my world. And then when I found this intuitive eating land, I was like, so confused. I was like, hold, hold on a minute. So you're saying that I can eat what I want, listen to my body and also be happy with my body without losing weight. And I could not, it was like someone had opened, I would open the fridge and I saw like the Grand Canyon or something. I was just like, what is this world? Which is why, you know, I'm so glad this world is getting bigger and more people are aware of in, what intuitive eating even means. But I didn't know what normal eating is was either. And I'm, I've, I agree with how you've described it. Just total freedom and relaxation around food. And that might mean eating a piece of cake if you're not hungry because it's someone's birthday. And yeah. that's fine and enjoyable it might mean saying no to chocolate because you can have some later in an hour or tomorrow or for breakfast or whatever the hell you want to do it's just being food just having just a normal part of your life like sex or exercise or whatever yeah they're no, very true and I think a good point for people as well is sometimes it's too much to jump from an eating disorder disordered eating to intuitive eating isn't it I think yes having some structure, I'm not talking about counting calories or anything here, but I'm talking about having some structure and regular eating and starting to sort of have a bit of a scaffolding with your eating is really helpful. Because if you try and jump into intuitive eating when you had an eating disorder, it can just feel overwhelming and it can feel like jumping in the deep end head first and it can feel so out of control that you might just retreat back to restriction again. Totally agree. I love that. And I've in my, you know, I go through my clients, the importance of offering yourself regular eating. I love the word you use scaffolding, because it's not a case of a food rule, you have to eat three times a day with two snacks. It's just okay, let's practice offering yourself breakfast, like a balanced breakfast, carbs, protein, fats, extra points for fiber and fruits without any judgment. And of course, this takes practice and work, and then offering yourself lunch. And then, and I remember, which leads nicely into my next question, actually, I remember when I started to do this, I had a very um, anxious relationship with the feeling of being full. So is that something you notice as well? Like, even if you've eaten a nourishing, quote, healthy meal, and your tummy is full, it was linked in my brain to binging and like failure and shame. And so even just feeling full in the middle of the day was like a real anxiety provoking behavior for me. Yeah, and no, I think that's something that's for, true for many of my clients, just that feeling full has become so uncomfortable. And I think it's so linked though as well, isn't it? To that sort of real over preoccupation with the body. So I'm just thinking that like myself now, I had lunch actually before I came on this podcast and um, now I'm thinking, now we're having this conversation, I'm thinking, how does my stomach feel? But I hadn't really given it another thought. Whereas I think when you're recovering from an eating disorder, you are so tuned in to those sensations of fullness, aren't you? And you might look at your stomach as well and notice signs of bloating and all of that. So I think it's a really common thing that many people struggle with. I think that in my own journey, actually, interestingly, it wasn't so much something that I struggled with, but it, for me, it was much more about the underlying stuff that the food was so much the symptom. Um, yeah. And I was quite in touch with that. But um, it's something that's so, you know, something that many, many people struggle with. So I think it's a great point to raise it. Yeah. And just me, I also ate before this podcast. Um, and what I tend to do now, and it's a habit that I've created for myself, and I, I see it as like a loving habit. So when I've eaten, and by the way, for everyone listening and watching, when you eat food, your stomach expands because you're putting food in your body. It's supposed to do that. It's a normal reaction to eating, unless you're obviously allergic to something, you'll have pain as well. But so when I have like a round full tummy, I like, you can't see because I'm only halfway on the film, but like I just stroke my stomach in like little round circles and kind of like, oh, that was like so delicious. And it's almost like I'm connecting to my body and then feeling the fullness that I used to fear so, so many times. 
and just be like, you know what, that was really delicious. I'm gl- and just kind of sending love to the fullness of my stomach and the nourishment that I've just given my body. Yeah, well, that's a lovely tip. Yeah. <laughs> so Thanks for sharing. try that and it links to feeling fat I mean if I had a pound a penny even the amount of times I've said oh I feel fat over my lifetime I swear I'd be a millionaire even with the penny analogy what and I saw one of your amazing posts and I've spoke about this before as well how do you see feeling quote fat is actually not a lot to do with our physical bodies it's something else usually isn't it Yeah, I mean, it's usually about another emotion that we're not feeling good in some way, often a negative emotion, and we're kind of projecting that onto the body. So it's not a conscious thing, you know, you're not thinking, ah, I'm feeling really sad. Oh, no, I'm feeling really fat. But I guess it's often, it's not often not about your body. And I guess for people to kind of like connect with this is to think about, you know, if you had to plot, I'm not encouraging people to do this, but if you did plot your weight over the course of a week, and then you also plotted your feelings of fatness, you know, your weight would probably be pretty stable. And I'm not encouraging, I'm not saying this to encourage people to start weighing themselves every day. I'm just trying to make a point here. But I'm just saying like, like your body probably doesn't really realistically rationally change much over a week. But if you plot your feelings of fatness day by day, it's probably going to be a bit of a roller coaster of a graph, you know, up and down. And then you can start to see in a way that these feelings of fatness aren't really to do with your body. They're to do with something else. So next time you feel fat, it's starting to look actually what's going on underneath this, what's just happened. And I know particularly with my clients with anorexia, sometimes I think of a client saying to me that she would have an argument with her boyfriend and afterwards she would literally feel herself blowing up. You know, obviously she wasn't rationally, but it was such a sort of strongly conditioned response. And it took a long time to like unpick that and to realize what was going on. You know, it felt so real in the moment. So I suppose just to validate for people really that that feeling of fatness can feel so true and so believable, but actually try to take a step back, try to think about what's going on, how am I feeling now and connect with the deeper root of the issue. Yeah, because it's so easy and we've been taught to do this through diet culture. It's easy and natural. Unfortunately, any term, any kind of uncomfortable emotion to just turn straight to your body and kind of try to either plan a diet, control, because again, it relieves anxiety and it it, it kind of helps at, at the time. But obviously, it's just like a plaster on a wound. You're not actually dealing with, with the root cause. So, yeah, I love that. And then what advice would you give someone who was struggling with body image? So let's say they can't look in the mirror without, you know, crying. And so they're avoiding the mirrors with the baby step analogy, which is the process I take with my clients as well, because otherwise you can create another trauma response if you're trying to leap too far out of the comfort zone. What things do you advise um, for your clients to help with the way they see their body day to day? So I think... Yeah, looking in the mirror, I think people with eating disorders, they tend to focus on their worst, their perceived worst body part and give that lots of attention. They don't tend to look at the background. They don't tend to look at their whole body. So I guess, you know, one tip to start with would just be to, you know, to start to be able to like look a bit more at what else you can see in the mirror, maybe to look at your whole body maybe even to start to give a bit more attention to a part of your body you can be a little bit more accepting of yeah I think you don't have to love your body it's starting to just be a bit more neutral you know like noticing like my legs are strong you know I'm standing here I can see them you know um so I think that can be a first step and I think just to be aware of one's sort of use of the mirror just generally like often people will be body checking multiple times a day, maybe looking at their stomach. And if you are, you know, we have 60,000 plus thoughts a day, many of those are repetitive and our thoughts are very much linked to our behaviors. So if you're doing the behavior of body checking numerous times a day, you're gonna have a lot of thoughts about your body. That's then then gonna impact how you feel. It's gonna impact how much more body checking you do. So it's starting to have again that kind of more bird's eye view of yourself and realize oh I'm doing this behavior again and again and again how's it affecting my well-being and to realize actually maybe I could start to reduce this a little bit and that's probably going to really help me feel a bit better 
you know, it's not a magic wand, but say if you're looking in the mirror, I don't know, 50 times a day and you reduce that to 30, you're going to see a change. So, it, you know, starting with those baby steps and, um, you, you know, and experimenting, you know, in a way you can just try something, you can experiment with it, almost see it's like a sort of scientific kind of experiment that you're just trying out. You don't have to stick to it. You can just see what happens and that can feel more empowering as well and that you're doing it from a place of choice. Yes, I love that. And where your attention goes, energy flows and then that expands as well, doesn't it? And I remember in my recovery journey, like I used to have, I used to body check. I used to do the whole, and I learned this from my mom who probably learned it from her mom and so on. Every time we finished eating, she would, and therefore I would, and my sister would look physically lift the top up to look at the tummy. So it was like, I've sat at the table, I finished my dinner. So now I'm the automatic response is just to look at my tummy for some reason to see how bloated it is. And so I used to get very uncomfortable with say if I'd just eaten and I was socializing and I was sitting on, on the couch or a chair, I would try and like pull my jeans up so I didn't have any like overhang. So I used to ask myself in recovery, what if I just sat here and was just, my body was just the way it was without trying to like adjust or look, look a certain way at a certain angle. And over time that felt very, it was very anxiety provoking at the beginning, but over time, that felt very freeing to me because it was like, I don't need to be faffing around pulling my jeans up or going to the toilet to check what my tummy looks like. What if, cause I just use those words, what if, what if I just didn't do the thing, see how that feels. And so I love the word experiment that you use. It's not a kind of another set of rules, like do not do this because most dieters rebel against any rule anyway. So yeah. it was just a, an exploration of like, what if I didn't body check this many times and see how that feels? So I love that you brought that into it. Mm. And it's so interesting hearing you talk about your story there, because I think with the best one in the world, no wonder your body image was pretty shot, really, wasn't it? I mean, so bad. <laughs> it was um, so bad. <laughs> so it's like if I had a spider phobia you know, and I really believe like spiders were out to get me and spiders were like everywhere. If I looked around this room now, I would find a spider and then yeah. I'd have the evidence, wouldn't I? And it's a bit like that with body checking in a way when you're looking for the evidence, like, yeah, you'll find it and then you'll beat yourself up and you won't feel good. And it's not a good path to go down. No, it's, it's its own perpetuating feedback loop, isn't it? And then we, we yeah. can use our conscious awareness to step out of the circle and be like, okay, with support, let's change this. Otherwise I'm going to be a hundred counting fucking almonds and weighing peanut butter. And that is not my life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so last question I have for you, and I'm glad that I've had a chance to just have a conversation with this, um, with you. You're in the UK and I'm British. A lot of my listeners are British and also around the world as well. What are your thoughts on the calories now on the menus in the UK? That's like, was a law a couple of months ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think really unhelpful, massively unhelpful. And that's probably the polite way of saying it, isn't it, really? <laughs> you can swear as much as you like on this podcast. I don't think I have yet, surprisingly. <laughs> it's a big one for me not to swear. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the trouble is still the powers that be still don't see, they don't link eating disorders and diet culture and again seeing that we're all on this kind of spectrum aren't we they sort of see and, and it's just seeing this problem that people are some people are overweight and they're just thinking okay we need the simplistic message of um eat less and move more so completely ignoring people's emotional relationship with food completely ignoring people's early trauma early experiences they've had ignoring the whole psychological psychology of eating and I think the calorie the putting calories on menus is just a, a fine example really of trying to address you know people's difficult relationship with food in a very simplistic black and white way which actually doesn't work and actually we know for most people creates more problems so yeah a hundred percent and you know because the BBC actually reached out to me to to interview about this and I won't say what happened there because I don't want to take the BBC on here but long story short they re the government's reasoning this is what I was told for putting the calories on the menu was to promote health okay all I'm going to say is calories do not equal health because okay let's say let's say that we're going to play with the word health and the calories so let's say someone goes into a cafe with their friend and they're looking at the menu and they're like oh rocky road 500 calories as an example 
oh, that salad looks beautiful. Goat's cheese, pine nuts, honey, olive oil with like all the delicious nourishments. Oh, that's like 700 calories. Oh, therefore I'm going to eat the Rocky Road, even though they probably wanted the salad because it's lower in calories. Now, not to slate Rocky Roads because I, man and Harriet's favorite food is chocolate, but in terms of health, which is what the government was saying, that, that the reason reasoning for the calories, the Rocky Road is not healthier than the salad. It, Rocky Road isn't bad, but the salad has loads more nutrients. But just because it has higher calories, I think people who are uneducated or only care about the calories because diet culture is everywhere all the time, they're going to yeah. choose a lower calorie option, which isn't health to me. Yeah, 100%. I'm with yeah. you. Yeah. Amen. And one last thing about BMI before you before I ask you how people can find you. Um, one of my clients, like, um, what's the word when they when they use the letters, an acronym? I think that's what yeah. she she and she did it brilliantly. It was bullshit misunderstood information, which I, I think bet. is very helpful because my BMI is one is 29. So I'm like a, a 30 is classed as obese and you know, I'm not like saying to everyone to look at my body size, but I'm very fit. I'm healthy. I eat well. And my BMI, if I went to a doctor, would be problematic. And so I think it's important to just clarify BMI is not helpful in any way to measure health. It's how you feel. Get blood work done if, you know, if you're worried about that. You can have your omega-3 to omega-6 fat ratio looked at if that's important to you. Fat does not equal health, thinness does not equal health, health cannot be measured, it's an internal job, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, hear, hear. Hear, hear. So <laughs> Harriet, how can people, are you accepting one-on-one -on -one clients? Like how can people come into your world and how can they work with you? Yes, I'm accepting more one-on-one -on -one clients from September. So mm -hmm. I am sort of pretty much taking August off, but people can sort of just get in touch with me, you know, pre-September if they're interested um, in sort of finding out a bit more. So I'm at, my website is theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. I'm on Instagram at theeatingdisordertherapist underscore. And my podcast is The Eating Disorder Therapist. So if you basically put Eating Disorder Therapist Harriet Frew into Google, I will come up. There are not many Harriet Frews out there. <laughs> I will link everything below as well. And do you work with clients on like a, a one-off session basis or do you have like programs where you work with them for like three to six months? Yes, I'm really quite flexible, actually, because of my training as a counsellor and doing therapy. I do make it quite individualised for each person. So I will work with with someone from anything between sort of four and up to about 20 sessions. So, but, you know, very much based on what they're kind of looking for and if they want to do more symptom focused work or as well, if they want to kind of delve a bit deeper and work on the roots of the problem. So, um, and I guess I would sort of make that decision with the client sort of in an initial session as we start to sort of explore things. Okay, Brill. Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your knowledge and all of it, your energy today. Really appreciate you. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Victoria. You're welcome. And Queens, I will see you on the next episode. Lots of love. I hope this episode was everything you needed to hear today and more. If you love this podcast, then please screenshot this episode and share it to your Instagram or Facebook stories and tag me at Victoria Kleinsman so I can share you with my audience and we can get my podcast out to more women that need it. Also, I'd be super duper grateful if you could rate and review this podcast as it really does help others to find it. Thank you so, so much in advance and I'll see you on the next one.